0: This is episode 31 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this podcast, I talk about the life of the amazing DeColta. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 31. In the news department, the Great Southern Magic Collectors and History Conference is right around the corner. Actually, it's is it this weekend? Yeah, I guess it is. It runs September 6th through the 8th in sunny Orlando, Florida. Actually, that's today, September 6th, so it started. You better be there. Uh, go to magic-palooza.com for more information. Also in the uh, auction news, uh, the Haversat and Ewing is holding another auction, which I believe is taking place again uh, today and tomorrow, September 6th and 7th. You can go to haversatewing.com for more information on their auction. And one more thing, there was an apparent glitch with my email account. So if you tried to enter the last Magic Detective contest, uh, well, you probably had your email bounce back. And I only found out about this just a couple days ago. So just so you know, the problem has been resolved. Uh, The contest is still open. I'll give you the question again. The question was... What is the real name of Maurice Raymond's second wife? Send your answers to info at Please include your name in the email. I'll choose a winner randomly from, from among all the winning entries, and I'll do that at the end of September. The winner will receive an authentic piece of Magic History ephemera, and uh, sorry again, my apologies again. I had no idea there was a problem with the email bouncing and I'm glad that uh, I was notified of that. So there's that. And now on to today's feature. Uh, interestingly, this uh, feature today got a lot of buzz when I first announced it. So I'm very excited to share the life story of Buttier de Coulter with you. He was born Joseph Bottier on November 18th, 1847 in Lyon, France. Oh, and before I get very far, I just want to say that I know that I am very probably mispronouncing his name. And please forgive me, um, I don't really know what the actual pronunciation is, so you're going to have to live with my pronunciation. And one thing you'll notice that I just mentioned here, his name Joseph Boutier, his real last name was not Decolta. Hmm. More on that later. Uh, We'll start with his origin story. How did he get started in magic? Well, at an early age, age of six years old, he was chosen to be a helper in a magic show of a traveling magician. And that was basically all she wrote. From that point on, he was hooked. A short time later, he received his first magic book as a birthday present. He set out to learn everything in the book, all the slights, all the tricks, how all the effects worked. There's only one small problem with the story, and that's his wife. His wife years later wrote a manuscript, which she gives the same story, but she claimed he was 18 at the time and not six. So I'm not really sure which one it was, but in either case, he saw a magician, and that's what inspired him to become a magician himself. His parents, however, they had a different plan for him. They wanted him to go into the priesthood. In fact, they wished that for all three of their boys, but in the end, it was only the youngest, Auguste, who would later become a priest. Bottier, upon graduation, had his sights on something else, and it wasn't magic. He actually became interested in art and painting by meeting a, uh, a painter, Eli Laurent. According to the book Bottier, de Culture, Genius of Illusion by Peter Warlock, Bautier spent two years away from magic and just painted. He had gotten himself a simple job as a waiter when one night along came a Hungarian empresario by the name of Julius de Colta. Bautier was not just waiting tables, by the way. He was actually doing strolling magic. He would go from table to table and do a little bit of magic as well as taking people's orders. And Julius saw this and he was captivated. He suggested to Bautier that... Well, he could make a fortune if he did this in Europe, and with Julius acting as his manager. So now you get a glimmer of where the name came from. It's been suggested that Bautier was possibly bilingual, so his ability to connect with English, Spanish, and French-speaking audiences was heightened. The year was 1870, and he first played in Geneva, Switzerland, and upon finishing there, went to Rome. It was not all sunshine and roses, however, because his act was primarily card tricks, so he was playing smaller venues, he played inns and cafes, and the occasional private engagement. Once again, according to Bottier's wife's manuscript, while in Rome, he ran into a priest friend from his old seminary. The two spoke, and Bottier revealed that his time on the road had been anything but successful and he was on the verge of giving up, but it seemed providence was now shining upon him as the priest arranged for Bautier to give a performance before very important representatives of the Roman Catholic Church. This event, as Bautier would later admit, was the turning point. Everything changed now. This led him to give some performances all around Rome at the finest theaters. In 1873, he would add a piece of apparatus, something of his own invention, a new routine called Lacage Cage Eclipse. It was an early version of what we would come to know today as the Vanishing Bird Cage. To begin with, a small rectangular bird and cage was held with one hand. Then he would grab the cage with the other hand, holding it by the two sides. With no covering at all, he would give an upward toss and the cage and bird simply vanished. He then walked off stage and a second later came back with the cage and bird safe and sound. Later in 1875, the routine would be called the flying cage. In the 1880s, Bottier created a new version of his flying cage, and this time it used a large oblong cage as opposed to the square one. The effect, however, was essentially the same. And I should mention it now, DeColta never sold his Vanishing Birdcage to anyone, yet it became a sensation all over the globe. In episode 8 of this podcast, I share with you how the Vanishing Birdcage had made its way to the United States in 1875 via Harry Keller. A short time later, Robert Heller wrote to a French magic dealer, Charles Devere and ordered a cage. Eventually, it would become a staple in the acts of many magicians like Keller, Cerveri Leroy, Fred Keating, Fu Manchu, John Booth, Fraxen, Tommy Wonder, the Blackstones, Sr. and Jr., Billy McComb, Walter Blaney, Jonathan Pendragon, and a host of other performers. A trick invented in the 19th century is still popular today in the 21st. Bautier did sell the secret of the cage to a magic dealer in Holland as times were bad and money was not coming in with just performing, but he did not sell an actual cage with it. In 1875, Bautier made his debut at Egyptian Hall in London. He was brought in by Dr. Lynn. His engagement was for one night. And this was basically so Dr. Lynn could see how Bottier performed before an audience. And Dr. Lynn was duly impressed, as were the London audiences. So they worked out a schedule where the two would alternate performances. And if I might stop for just a minute to explain something that I had previously been unaware of, apparently Egyptian Hall at that time was divided between Dr. Lynn and Maskelyne and Cook. Lynn having exclusive use of the large hall, while Maskelyne and Cook had a drawing room and a small hall. But in July of 1875, Dr. Lynn left, and the establishment was now open to lease again. So this time, Maskelyne and Cook jumped at it, and the entire Egyptian hall was theirs. I had no idea of this little bit of drama. Uh, Buttier began working for Masculine and Cook at Egyptian Hall in August of that year. His act appears to be mainly parlor-sized magic, along with the vanishing birdcage. And speaking of inventions, Decolta's wife suggests in her short manuscript on her husband that he never purchased a magic trick, but instead invented and built everything he ever used. And this is true to a point Um, In regards to magic tricks, it's likely everything was his invention. But he did purchase a copy of the automaton Psycho, uh, who was called Altotis in the DeColta show. So here's a small example of something he did not build or create. But other than that, um, he pretty much built everything that he used. By the way, having this uh, Psycho automaton irritated John Neville Maskelyne greatly. Let's go ahead and take a look at some of Bottier's unique inventions early on. One of them was his take on the rising cards. You can find this, by the way, in Tarbell number two for the curious. But in effect, three cards are chosen and shuffled into a deck. The deck is then placed into a glass, which is sat on a chair, and at the command of the performer, all the cards begin jumping from the glass, creating a fountain-like effect. At the end, the three chosen cards are the only three that remain in the glass. All the others have flown out at the magician's command. It's a very beautiful and very offbeat effect, and it may have been an invention that was also invented by somebody else. I doubt DeColta had knowledge of this. In the February 1903 Mahatma, they mentioned the wonderful mystery that DeColta's trick creates, and that in 1887, a juvenile magician by the name of Signor Fritzini presented the very same trick. I guess it's a case of independent creation, or would that be independent duplication? Don't know. There an effect that is only briefly touched on uh, in the book Genius of Illusion. It's DeColte's diminishing and then expanding cards. And the way it's written, he takes a deck of cards and he says he's going to make them proper size for the ladies. And then by simply shuffling them over and over and over, they begin to shrink in size. And he holds them up, and sure enough, they have definitely shrunk to a much smaller size. Then he says he's going to make them suitable for a gentleman. And again, he begins shuffling again and again and again, and they continue to grow. He holds them up, shows that they've grown, and then he shuffles some more. And this time, they're like twice the size of a regular playing card. Bautier's sleight-of-hand skills must have been impeccable. One of his features was something he called the Five Coins. And yes, that's a rousing title if ever there was one. The Five Coins is a coin flourish known as the Coin Star. However, this one appears to predate the T. Nelson Downs Coin Star, but it's basically the same thing. Now, let's skip to 1878. Bautier has returned to France. Paris, to be exact, and for whatever reason, he changes his name slightly. He takes the last name of his somewhat worthless manager, de Colta, and now becomes Bautier de Colta. And on this day in Paris, he creates another one of his masterpieces, The Flowers from Cone, or the most basic simplistic title, The Spring Flowers. And I honestly think this is was probably close to a miracle in his hands and in the hands of the earliest practitioners. Here's what would happen. First, they would roll up a paper into a, an empty cone. They would show the cone to be empty. And then somehow, the magician suddenly causes the cone to fill up with flowers. Over and over, these flowers would pour out into a, an open umbrella, but they would continue to grow and appear and appear and appear. Uh, it's said that DeColta used a thousand of these special spring flowers. One of the secret techniques used in this production would later be adopted by dub workers. So in a way, DeColta gave birth to that whole genre without even realizing it. And I'm also fairly confident that the early spring flowers were made in lifelike flower colors and not the atrocious neon colors that are often seen today. Sadly, many a magic prop have been ruined by... Good intention, but poorly thought-out design choices. Just think about all the crappy-looking apparatus that came out in the 20th century. Decolta now begins to set his sights on larger effects, and one interesting illusion was called La Cocoon, which I believe he debuted in December of 1885, and here is a very artistic piece, a departure from what anyone was doing in the world of magic at the time. It began simply enough with a paper framework being hung in the air. The magician would draw the outline of a silkworm, and then suddenly the paper burst open, and there was a large cocoon. Not a picture of a cocoon, but a very large cocoon, which you would pick up and place down upon a stool. And as the cocoon was placed upon the stool, this realistic cocoon burst open and out came a woman dressed as a moth or a butterfly. Just reading that description, I, I suddenly thought of the movie Alien, where the uh, the alien bursts forth from the uh, alien cocoon from the famous Ridley Scott movie. Um, <laughs> I, don't know why. It's, I don't know why. Anyway, one thing about La Cocoon, it had a very complicated method. The patent for this illusion does appear in the book, uh, Botier de a Genius of Illusion, by Peter Warlock. I'm not going to reveal that because, as you know, that's not. I don't reveal secrets here on the podcast. But it is a very poetic uh, mystery. Silkworm cocoon, moth. Really, really fascinating. I think. I frankly think it would make a, a really cool illusion today, though. I think you'd need to alter the method slightly, but it would still be a beautiful effect here in the 21st century. Now we come to 1886, and de was in St. Petersburg, Russia, and he would debut a game-changing illusion. To begin with, he would take a sheet of newspaper and place it upon the stage, and the purpose of this was to discount any thought of a trap door. Then a chair would be placed on top of the newspaper. De assistant, Then came out and sat down on the chair, and a thin sheet was placed over her entire body. You could make out the outline of her head and her shoulders and her knees. No sooner was the sheet placed over her, it was suddenly whisked away. In the process, the lady vanished. Her outline was seen right up until the moment that the cloth was taken away. Oh, and to add another element to the mystery, the cloth also vanished. The illusion was known as The Vanishing Lady. It would become an instant hit. John Neville Maskelyne wanted it for Egyptian Hall, but DeColta couldn't get there soon enough, so they made arrangements for Charles Bertram to present the illusion. Interestingly, Bertram and DeColta actually kind of resemble each other. Now, I was excited to find a newspaper ad for Dakota in America presenting The Vanishing Lady in 1886. However, before I could really think about the timing of that whole thing. I found out in the Genius of Illusion book, uh, there was a write-up on that very same article. Apparently, this person that was presenting the effect in America was not DeColta. In fact, the performer's name was never given. What it says is, the first authorized performance in this city of DeColta's trick entitled The Vanishing Lady. Also mentioned in the book was the fact that Alexander Herman was the first famous magician in America to present the effect. Soon, The Vanishing Lady would be in a lot of acts. Now, did did Coulter get any compensation for this? Uh, Other than the Charles Bertram appearance at Egyptian Hall and his work with Masculine, I don't think he got anything for it. The Vanishing Lady was so popular, at one point, the method had become common knowledge. It had been exposed numerous times, both in books and in magazines. It was probably only Ricciardi Jr., who kept presenting the illusion right up until his death in the 1980s. His version was nothing short of a miracle. After the girl had been covered, a steamer trunk on a tall platform was rolled out. The trunk was tilted down to show that it was empty, and then it was closed and put upright. Ricciardi walked over to the lady, pulled the cloth away, and she vanished instantly. A second later, that cloth was whisked in front of the empty trunk, and boom, the lady was inside the trunk. It just seemed impossible. David Copperfield would produce one of the most stunning examples of the vanishing lady. His routine was a vignette, a scene from an attic. The magician reminisced over a picture of an old girlfriend, and suddenly... That old girlfriend appears. They interact, and at the end, she climbs up on a table where a chair is sitting. She sits in the chair, and she covers herself with a cloth in a type of hide-and-seek game. When Copperfield spots her, he steps up on the table, pulls away the cloth, and the woman is gone. It's a powerful presentation filled with emotion and romance, and probably the best version of The Vanishing Lady ever presented, in my humble opinion. Next, I'd like to bring up a device that Dakota invented. This device was called the cachet. It was used along with another device called the pole. And I always thought it was Dicolta that invented the pole, but actually I believe his contribution was the cachet, which allowed for the bare-handed vanish of scarves and handkerchiefs. Another uh, tool of the 19th century conjurer that over time has fallen out of favor. But uh, just as a side note, my best friend, Bobby Diamond, who passed away a couple years ago, he was a master of this device. He was fairly new to magic at the time, and he'd seen magicians at magic shops make small scarves vanish and then reappear. And he asked me if it was possible to make something vanish that was like larger than a tiny six-inch square scarf scarf and I pointed him towards this modernized version of DeColta's device I'd used one so I knew the impact and I taught him how to use it and he learned it so well he began fooling everyone with it now this is the ultimate and this is what I love about this he would use this while doing strolling magic. He'd borrow a dollar bill from someone, show his hands empty, take the dollar bill, push it into his fist, and sometimes he'd even let them put push the dollar bill into his fist, and then without any unusual movements or anything, he'd open his hands, the bill was gone. People were often so amazed that they let him keep the money because it was such a good trick. And he told me one day he made over $100 in the afternoon just doing that trick over and over and over. And honestly, I thought he was exaggerating, but later I'd actually seen him do that very thing over and over. Once he made that dollar bill, people couldn't believe it. And more people would be giving him a dollar going, do it again, do it," expecting to catch him, but they never caught him. It was just a Shows the genius of this device that DeColta had created. One of the lesser known illusions that DeColta invented was called the magic carpet. This was a large rug. An assistant would stand in the center of the rug, and then he and another assistant would pick the rug up by the corners and uh, just kind of so they could obscure the view of the person inside the folds. They would shake the carpet a bit, and then they'd drop it, and the person was gone. And that vanished person would later appear in the audience. Now, in regards to his personal life, Bautier de Colta married Alice Mumford, likely sometime in the mid-1880s. She had previously been a musician, so they likely met in the theater where they were both performing. In the book, The Old and New Magic by Henry Ridgely Evans, he says de Colta married Alice Allen in London on December 8, 1887, but this is not correct. Alice Allen was an assistant in the show, but de Colta had already married Mrs. Mumford and remained married to her his entire life. Now, it is an understandable mistake, and I'll explain more on that later. Bautier de Colta claimed to have invented an illusion called modern black magic. This same principle was also claimed by Max Ausinger likely the originator, and others. And I think it's uh, likely another independent creation, though. DeCultus does differ slightly from Ozinger's principle, and I can't really say any more on this one. If you're a magician, you know what this principle is. Um, there were some people that uh, were performing this. Um, William Robinson was performing a version of this using this technique. Uh, Sir Vey Leroy was known to use this technique in his magic, so... It's a a popular method or principle, I should say principle, could be used in lots of different things. And I think that uh, Ozinger and DeCulte probably came up with it separately. In the book, The Old and New Magic by Henry Ridgely Evans, he says, at the Eden Moosey in New York City, DeColta introduced the large vanishing cage, which he intended as a satire on the flying cage because of the repeated suppositions that a bird was killed at each performance. This was an illusion that he called the captive's flight. It clearly has some similarities to The Vanishing Lady. It began innocently enough with a large serving tray that was held out for inspection. This was then laid upon the stage. Next, DeColta's wife, dressed in a costume to look somewhat like a bird, came out and knelt upon this small tray. DeColta then covered her with a parrot's cage, and then in the original version, he covered the entire affair with a cloth, and in a moment, whisked it away, and the cloth, the bird woman, and the cage were all gone. Over time, he would eliminate the cloth covering and add what were basically large playing cards, which were connected by fabric. He would just kind of stack these up around the cage, um, again, obscuring it from view. Then DeColta would attempt to lift up the cage with the woman inside, and he'd have trouble and accidentally drop it, and the cards would just collapse all over, thus showing that the bird woman in the cage, again, were gone. The final illusion I want to share with you is an iconic effect known as the expanding die. Now, DeColta called it the dice, Um, but here's the effect. The magician walked out on stage with a die, single dice, which was approximately six inches square. He placed it upon a table where it suddenly grew to 50 inches square. Then the die was lifted to reveal a woman inside. Reads like a miracle, doesn't it? Uh, now, not having seen it in action, I don't really know how it appeared. I expect the appearance of a woman inside was quite stunning. The actual expanding of the die, well, I'm not sure. At least I'm not sure now, but in a couple minutes, I'll explain more. <laughs> um, without revealing anything, I will say this. This trick was a beast, and you'd have to be a genius just just, just to figure out how to construct this kind of thing. Now, if we take a look at the entire routine, it actually begins like this. This gives you more context on it. Dakota comes out carrying a satchel, which he claims contains his wife. In this form, it cuts down on travel expenses. And he sets the uh, satchel uh, down on a, a chair, and he proceeds to begin his act. And he does lots of his smaller effects that he's known for. And then eventually, near the end of the act, he reaches, into the satchel to introduce his wife, but he produces this small dice. Again, this is like the six six inch square dice. And he sets this down on a table, a low uh, table. And it's a thin table, it's got thin legs. This dice that's set upon it is very isolated by itself. Then they take a, a fan, a large Japanese style fan, they open it up and they put that on the back of the uh, table. So it forms kind of a backdrop on the table. You see the dice there. He waves his hands over the dice and then almost instantly this thing grows from six inches to 50 inches. So before when I was reading that description, I, I, I guess I just didn't realize how quick this was. I thought it was kind of a laborious sort of thing, but no, apparently an eyewitness account says this thing was instantaneous, went from six inches, boom to 50 inches. And then, of course, he and his assistant lift this thing up, and sure enough, underneath the dice was DeColta's wife. And this would be his final creation. Now, in 1902-1903, DeColta was back in America. He had appeared here in 1891, but now he's returning, and he brought with him his expanding die. He began appearing in New York at the Eden Moosey in September 1902. He finished there seven months later, in April of 1903. At this point, he began to tour throughout the United States. In September of 1903, he was in New Orleans, appearing at the Orpheum Theater. By all reports, he was not feeling well that week. And the following week, he was extremely ill and still in New Orleans. And then, on October 7th, 1903, Joseph Bottier passes away. He had Bright's disease, or what we know of today as kidney disease. He was only 55 years old. Now, he was a heavy smoker, and it's very possible he had an unhealthy diet. His body was taken back to England, and he was buried in England. Now, revealed in the book Genius of Illusion, Lizzie Allen, or Alice Allen, was five months pregnant when DeColta died. He'd been having a romantic affair with her unknown to his own wife, Alice. But at five months, she could no longer hide the fact that she was pregnant. On March 9, 1904, Decolta's daughter, whom he never saw and never met, was born. She was named Violet, but went by the name Vicky during her life. And according to the book... She was involved in magic almost her entire life. Uh, She was behind the scenes, but uh, she had a magic manufacturing company and worked with other performers, so it's kind of interesting the fact that DeColta's daughter was in the business as well. Charles Morritt, the famous English magician, pointed out the fact that it was DeColta who coined the term illusionist and was the first to use it. Now, if you're wondering how so many of DeColta's tricks got ripped off, Well, it turns out he patented most of them. So the unscrupulous magicians needed only to get copies of the patent papers. Though, in all honesty, um, (laughs) I shouldn't use that word, in all honesty, Um, they had more devious techniques than getting patent papers, but they could obtain patent papers to find out how things worked. And that is not all the illusions and all the effects that DeColta created. I just want, kind of gave you the, an overview of the best ones. There were some. There were quite a few others. There are a lot of smaller magic, handkerchief tricks and things, uh, card tricks, card slights, lots of things he created. He was a very prolific inventor. I would encourage you, if you don't have the book, to get the book Bautier DeColta, Genius of Illusion by Peter Warlock, put out by... Uh, Magical Publications, Mike Caveney's, uh, I guess it's MC Magic Words now is the name of it. And I don't know if it's available or not, but uh, there are copies out there that you can find. So it's a great book and it tells all about his life and his inventions. And it has the uh, patent papers for a number of the illusions in there as well. So you can kind of see for yourself how intricate a lot of these things were. And it gives a list of, I believe, uh, all his known effects and where they can be found in print, which I thought was cool as well. That wasn't the only book that I used for this particular podcast. I used Ask Alexander quite a bit. I also used uh, the old and the new magic. And, of course, the standby uh, David Price's book as well. So I hope you've enjoyed this particular podcast. Just so you know, This podcast, number 31, is the final podcast of season one of the Magic Detective Podcast. (laughs) I just realized recently that, um, or coming up really quickly on the first year anniversary, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up and uh, get ready for season two and maybe do some things a little bit differently in season two. Not drastically differently, just... um, I would like to begin doing some interviews. When that's going to happen, don't know. But um, Well, actually, when am I going to get the interviews? I don't know. But I will be back sometime in October with season two of the podcast. I um, I have a list. I think that list started at about 100 names of magicians that I wanted to talk about on the podcast. And I figured, well, 100, that should be, you know... Couple years, three, four years worth of uh, podcasts. And the the list has already grown to over 150. So <laughs> who knows how long this podcast will keep going? I, I don't know. As long as there's an audience out there that enjoys it, I'll probably keep doing it. And you can rest assured there will be a season two. It's only a few weeks away. Um, I just have to move in the process. I'm moving from Virginia to another state. So right now, My books are in two locations on my library. Some of them are in the new state and some of them are in the old state. And uh, it's going to be a lot harder to do the podcast without all my research material. So that's another reason I'm wrapping up season one. I was, I'll be honest with you. I was really hoping to get to 5,000 by the one year anniversary, 5,000 downloads. And I'm currently in the 4,000s, but I don't think I'm going to make it to five. I'm going to be close. Um, But the other side of that, I'll be honest, I wasn't even sure when I started this anybody was even going to listen. So the fact that I got an audience at all is uh, is a big blessing. I'm very grateful to everyone that listens. And what's wonderful is I keep finding out that very famous people are listening as well as everyone else. And and it doesn't matter if you're famous or not. I love the fact that you're listening. It's just kind of cool when you find out somebody famous really enjoys the podcast. That's awesome. Season two, like I said, not far off. It'll be in October this year, 2019. So stay tuned for that until then I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the magic detective. Thanks for listening. Oh, and don't forget to share the podcast with everyone, you know, you know, I'd really appreciate that until next time.